This show discusses sexual assault and sexual violence. It may be upsetting to some listeners. Shortly after Jeffrey Epstein was indicted by the grand jury on that one measly charge, he turned himself in. On July 23, 2006, he was allowed to quietly self-surrender in the middle of a Sunday night. He spent a few hours in a jail cell, and then the man who claimed he was a billionaire and most certainly was a flight risk was asked to pay a $3,000 bond. His lawyer handed the money over in cash. And then, just in time for lunch, Epstein left the jailhouse. Palm Beach Police Chief Michael Ryder found out about the arrest the following morning while flipping through the newspaper. And then he and Detective Joe Riccari spent the afternoon doing something they had never done before. They spoke to the feds behind the back of the local prosecutor. They met with the FBI agents and a federal prosecutor to evaluate if this could be a federal case. And after two hours, they decided it could be. The feds opened their own investigation and gave it a name, Operation Leap Year. Chief Ryder's move, though, speaking to the feds, ended up being very controversial. It was raised years later when he was deposed. Okay, were you encouraging the FBI to, to pursue federal charges against Mr. Epstein? I was encouraging the FBI to diligently investigate them. And what did they say? That is, what did the various representatives from the FBI say? Because we believed that the aircraft was involved and countrywide telephone system, they felt as though there may very well be a federal nexus, federal statutes violated. And they basically accepted the investigation. They have to get investigations approved before it's an official investigation, but they took everything and said, okay, we're gonna go with this. If you've ever seen a cop show, you know the local cops and the feds don't work together. And local cops do not, on TV or in real life, go to the feds to say the local prosecutors screwed up a case. Ryder and Raccari needed the Palm Beach State Attorney every day to help them get warrants, subpoenas, indict criminals, prosecute cases, to humiliate their primary partner, and this was a massive humiliation, is rare. The state attorney in the neighboring county, Miami-Dade, said Ryder was acting unprofessionally. Epstein's lawyers went even further, making it personal, claiming Ryder had gone crazy because of a messy divorce. But what else could Ryder and Raccari have done? Epstein's single charge, for solicitation of prostitution didn't even come close to matching his crimes. Hi, I'm Tara Palmieri, host of Broken, Seeking Justice. I've been reporting alongside the victims of Jeffrey Epstein on their journey to get justice. These women didn't have money, connections, or high-powered lawyers on their side. They trusted that the U.S. government would lock up a serial child abuser for life. The police had a thick report based on an 11-month investigation to hand over to the feds. It included evidence like handwritten messages from Epstein with the victims with their names and numbers. The police had identified 17 witnesses and five underage victims, all with strikingly similar stories of abuse. Normally, a sex crime is prosecuted locally, 
for Epstein to be prosecuted federally, they needed to show he violated federal law. And it seemed he might have. His sex abuse operation could have crossed state lines, extending from his homes in Florida to New York, New Mexico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. On this episode, we'll tell you the story of a hard-working civil servant who wanted to do the right thing and then succumbed to pressure from her own bosses to craft a sweetheart deal for Jeffrey Epstein. But first, we'll hear from a woman with inside knowledge of Epstein's organization. After years of abuse, she was desperate to help the feds nail Epstein, but told us she was kept in the dark as the deal was hatched. For three years, Courtney Wilde was a frequent presence at Jeffrey Epstein's mansion. Last week, you heard about how he persuaded her, as a minor, to recruit other young girls to come over and be abused. But until his arrest photos were beamed across the news, she'd have no idea who Epstein really was, that he was a prominent financier who hung out with princes and presidents. She thought he was a brain surgeon. Courtney knew Epstein was sick, but it was still a shock to see reports about him on TV. But even more than his prominence, the charge is what threw her for a loop. Just those words, solicitation of prostitution. That meant the state of Florida saw 19-year-old Courtney as a prostitute and Epstein as a John. And it made her worry that maybe it was true, that she was the criminal here. Was she in trouble too? With all this racing through her mind, Courtney called the only person she could think of who would know, Epstein's assistant, Sarah Kellen. They call Sarah and say, Sarah, what's going on? He's been arrested, but he'll be out soon and everything will be taken care of. It's fine. But um, we have an attorney for you. She basically says, okay, if you don't say anything, you'll be taken care of. And I still don't know what she exactly meant by that, but that's what she said to me. Sarah Kellen gave her the name of a local attorney and said Epstein was willing to pay his fees. So Courtney called the guy and arranged to talk with him. But it was weird. They didn't meet at his office. Instead, they met at a local sports bar. How he treated me was kind of like I was a prostitute or some weird. And I remember, like, just sitting there and being like, the vibe, the just how he was speaking to me. I, I remember saying I went to the bathroom and just left. In their conversation, Kellen had said something confusing to Courtney. She told her, they're going to come and talk to you. Courtney didn't know who they were, but it soon became very clear. The FBI keeps on coming to my house because they want to talk to me, but they're so aggressive. They're coming to my house, banging on the door and just acting like, I'm like, I'm going to jail. <laughs> There's no way that I'm not. This is crazy. Like, I felt like I, I had done something wrong. Courtney ignored them and hoped they'd leave her alone. And they did, that time. But then the FBI tried a new tactic. After months of banging on her door, going to her work, the FBI agents came to her house and left something on her front steps. I come home and there's like a big case box on my front doorstep, I put it inside, and it's like, um, it's all the victim statements of the first time they went to Jeffrey's. So I don't know, like, if it was, like, why they left that there or what, but I start reading these. The first one I pull out is my childhood friend uh, that I'm still very close friends with, and I read her um, statement, and it just makes me cry. 
then I read another statement and it makes me cry. And it's like, okay, if I had to write in what I had the first time I went to him and how I felt, it was like this statement, you know, it was all these statements and it made me cry. Courtney sobbed over those words, those stories of excruciating abuse. And something inside Courtney changed. She couldn't see how big a change it was until later. At the time, it felt like she was crying for the other girls and what they had endured. How clearly they had been taken advantage of. And it made her consider something she had always rejected. Was she a victim too? If these girls weren't prostitutes, neither was she. She deserved better, from the justice system and from Epstein. He needed to pay. I started calling the FBI, and I said, hi, I'm a victim of Jeffrey Epstein. What's happening with the case? We don't know who came up with the idea of leaving that box of victim statements on Courtney's stoop, but I feel pretty sure it was the handiwork of a prosecutor named Marie Villafania. That's who got assigned to the Epstein investigation once the feds took it on, and that's who Courtney met with after she came forward. The 38-year-old prosecutor was known for being thorough and commanded respect at the office for her unique ability to unravel complex cases. She ripped the Epstein case apart, working closely with FBI agents to get more and more evidence. One colleague called her a brilliant organizational tactician. Villafania took what the Palm Beach cops had built and made it even stronger. She worked with a handful of top FBI agents and a network of other agents in New York. She confirmed that the Palm Beach police were right. This was a very substantial case, and she strengthened it even further. With the help of the FBI, she identified more than 30 additional witnesses. Like Courtney, many of the victims were reluctant to talk. They were intimidated by Epstein and his private investigators. They were embarrassed. They didn't want their friends or families to know they were victims of a sex abuse ring. Others still felt loyal to Jeffrey. Villafania wrestled for months to get Courtney's best friend to talk. She was being represented by an attorney paid for by Epstein. Villafania tried her hardest to get this Jane Doe to testify. She even offered to arrange childcare so that she could be involved. Eventually, the woman agreed to be interviewed with her lawyer present. Despite being molested by Epstein from the age of 14 on, she would only call him an awesome man. She said she hoped he wouldn't be prosecuted. Her interview was useless. Villafania kept on going. She spent almost a year investigating Epstein, along with all those FBI agents. Julie K. Brown was able to see how deftly Villafania did her job when she started reporting this story for the Miami Herald. She really went hard after Epstein in the beginning, was able to make a a very good case for sex trafficking, which he would have gone to prison if not for life for a very long time. By May 2007, her office had drafted a 53-page indictment and an 82-page prosecution memo. We can't read them. They've been locked away by the feds. But sources in that office have told me that they are very powerful documents that make clear that Epstein and several co-conspirators ran a sex abuse operation. To those colleagues, it seemed like Villafania had an undeniably strong case against Epstein. She'd found solid evidence of a multi-state conspiracy to lure children to a rich man's house so he could sexually abuse them. In other words, proof it was a federal crime. 
She sent her indictment off to the U.S. Attorney's main office in Miami. Villafania probably expected the submission to the front office to go the same way it had for her other cases. It's either approved, it's either rejected, or it's approved with edits. That's Steve Carlton, a former prosecutor in the Southern District of Florida who worked in the West Palm Beach office with Villafania. He told me that almost immediately, the standard order of operations was ignored. So the fact that it didn't get charged immediately and instead went down the road of extended negotiation, that was unusual. Despite all of Villafania's careful gathering of evidence, federal prosecutors never even filed charges or initiated criminal proceedings against Jeffrey Epstein. We'll talk about why after the break. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. When you make a career out of it, there are going to be things that you have to do that you may not agree with, and you're not willing to give up your career just because you were overruled by a supervisor. I think that's what happened here. Steve Carlton did not envy his colleague Marie Villafania. She was suddenly getting a lot of attention from Miami, particularly from their boss, U.S. Attorney Alex Acosta. And not the good kind of attention— the kind she probably deserved for putting together such a comprehensive case against a child sex abuser. Some might have called that attention interference. Carlton is more diplomatic. He called it interest. But he felt bad for Villafania. That's got to be very stressful to have a resolution be forwarded and you'd be given marching orders that's contrary to the investigation that you've conducted in detail on your own. Do I think that this was the resolution that she desired? No, I don't. But sometimes in this job, you don't get to make the ultimate decision. The front office told Villafania, in no uncertain terms, to make a deal with Epstein. This case she solved, but the settlement resolution got shoved down her throat. That's obvious, and it wasn't something she wanted to do, but she continued to do what she was asked to do, and the case got resolved. Years later, Villafania made a sworn statement that was filed in court about that time. It turns out what was happening behind the scenes was pretty much the exact opposite of what Courtney and other victims wanted. Villafania says that her bosses, led by Acosta, told her they wanted her to negotiate a deal with Epstein's lawyers. They had some conditions that might have sounded fine from the victim's perspective. They wanted Epstein to be a registered sex offender— they wanted him to make restitution to his victims. But they also said they were fine with him serving as little as two years in prison. That moment, when Acosta and his deputies came up with these conditions, is really the turning point of the whole Epstein saga. The idea that they would openly negotiate with Epstein for such a short sentence is completely insane, without even charging him. 
The feds had dozens of witnesses and corroborating evidence that could have put Epstein away for decades. Why start out the negotiation with such a low number? Why two years? For a man Acosta's office knew at the time was being accused by dozens of young women of sexual abuse, and it was a case they found credible. Remember, they didn't even have to strike a deal. Many experienced prosecutors tell us that the Epstein case was very strong, very winnable, even if Epstein hired some famous attorneys. Many prosecutors we spoke to say that Acosta, who had never tried a case, was being a coward. I don't know how it got from point A, which was aggressive prosecution, to point B, which was the final non-prosecution, which is not what federal prosecutors are supposed to do. They're they're federal prosecutors, they're not federal non-prosecutors. That's Paul Pelletier, a former federal prosecutor at the Department of Justice. He worked at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Miami and knew Villafania. When he talks about Acosta, even years after all this went down, he still seems incredulous. Every single person I've spoken with who knows Alex Acosta talks about him the same way, as an ambitious partisan striver who will do just about anything to get more power. They say his naked ambition goes far beyond his ability. One called him a black hole of charisma who has two modes, sucking up to people with more power and contempt for those without. He was a rising Republican legal star. He clerked for Samuel Alito, and he worked with a bunch of top conservative lawyers at the powerful firm Kirkland & Ellis before getting into government during the George W. Bush administration. Epstein's team of lawyers seemed designed to influence this one man. It was filled with superstars who Acosta knew and admired. He would later say he felt incapable of going up against these powerful attorneys. There was Guy Lewis, who had been U.S. attorney for the Southern District before Acosta. He would have been well aware of how Acosta's office worked. Epstein also hired Jay Lefkowitz, who had worked at Kirkland when Acosta was there and had held positions in both Bush administrations. The masterstroke, though, was hiring Kenneth Starr, who led the Clinton impeachment investigation. Starr was Acosta's hero the model of a thriving conservative lawyer. Starr was precisely the kind of lawyer Acosta would have looked up to, says Pelletier. Ken Starr, I guarantee you, is a godfather to a lot of people who have received political appointments. And so, you know, coming from the same law firm, it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, Alex Acosta thought that Ken Starr is a godfather, one of his godfathers, political godfathers. So Epstein had assembled the dream team. There were also celebrity lawyers like Roy Black, best known at the time for his successful defense of a Kennedy nephew against rape charges in 1991, as well as Alan Dershowitz. One thing worth noting, this is the second time Epstein put together a politically connected team designed to influence an ambitious attorney. In the local case, Epstein had assembled a team of Democratic Party loyalists people who might be able to sway Palm Beach State Attorney Barry Krischer. But in an instant, when the case moved to the federal system, Epstein is instantly able to assemble a team which, if anything, is more well-connected in Republican circles. Steve Carlton, the former prosecutor you heard from earlier, saw these lawyers as they walked through the office in West Palm Beach. 
and he couldn't get over just how many suits were working on this single case. In the 29 years that I was prosecuting cases, I never saw a case where another target had more than two or three lawyers at most. And in this particular case, I can't even tell you how many. He had at least, I don't know how many he had. He might have had six, seven, eight lawyers. Jeffrey Epstein had eight lawyers with 250 years of experience between them. And all of them had trained their sights on one line prosecutor, Marie Villafania. From the very beginning of reporting on the Epstein case, I have been fascinated by Villafania. She is the biggest puzzle in my mind. And I have felt if I could understand her better, I could understand so much about how the Epstein case unfolded the way it did. Epstein was very rich. And it's just not surprising that he was able to surround himself with enablers and co-conspirators. It's awful. It's depressing. But we know that. Lots of people will do questionable things for money or for influence. But Villafania shocks me, upsets me, really. She wasn't ambitious for money or power or prestige. Her ambitions were about justice, about doing her work well and sending criminals to jail. But... As we'll describe in a minute, she ended up being the foot soldier who had to do the dirty work when her bosses decided to roll over for Epstein. Paul Pelletier finds the whole thing shocking. How the indictment and charging instrument got wrested away from her to the extent that they gave Epstein a federal kiss on the lips and a swan on the butt and was told to go back to the state authorities from whence he came which I've never seen in my life. Villafania has said in a sworn statement that it was not her decision to seek only a two-year sentence. But even if it wasn't her decision, she certainly had a choice. She could say, no, I'm not going to offer this deal. Maybe she'd get fired, although it's kind of hard to fire a civil servant. Maybe she'd be penalized internally and have to resign. I asked Carlton, what would have happened if she just said no? Do you think that her career would have been ruined if she said, I don't want to do this? Like, if she got Washington paying attention to you, you have Acosta breathing down your throat, do you think that her career would have been done? No. But, you know, I don't know. Only she knows that. Have you ever seen someone say, I don't want to be on this case, I disagree, and then end up, you know, in the back office somewhere? No, but I've I've seen people... Um, you know, the supervisors might lose confidence in somebody that, that that decides to take a stand or back off on a case. Has it happened before? Yeah, it's happened. Not very often, but it has happened. And then you might have to earn your bones again by rising to the occasion on another case. So if they, if they lose confidence, then you're going to have to rebuild that but confidence But that's with not the necessarily a case where the U.S. attorney is involved, right? That's true, but in my in my experience... No one in West Palm ever got punished or relegated by the U.S. attorney in Miami for anything they did on a case. So what the hell was she doing? Why did she do this? I would love to bring you Villafania's voice. Of all the people involved in this disgraceful case, Villafania is the one I most want to understand. I have been desperate to talk to her, to hear her side, to have her walk us through her thinking. 
I did get her on the phone for a few minutes where I gave her my pitch on why she should speak to me. She seemed sad and scared and told me to contact her lawyer. So I spent hours speaking with her lawyer. Before the pandemic, I flew to a meeting to try to persuade her in person. She'd go back to Villafania and then go back to me. She finally told us that the Department of Justice refused to waive its attorney-client privilege over the Epstein case, and therefore Villafania could not discuss the case and her opinions on its outcome. Since we couldn't talk to her in person, we're just left with what she said in a few sworn statements. In a declaration, Villafania stated that she was concerned that Epstein's victims wouldn't want their identities revealed. That's why she supported the idea of negotiating with Epstein to begin with. But it's hard for me to imagine it was that simple. She was aware of what Epstein was accused of, not just the assaults, but the remarkable scope. And she wasn't the only one. Her boss, Alexander Acosta, knew all of this too. The way that Acosta handled this case is quite clearly inappropriate. After all, he later had to step down as labor secretary. But the biggest red line that Acosta crossed is that he got involved in the investigation at all. Acosta oversaw more than 200 lawyers who collectively were investigating and prosecuting countless cases. The U.S. attorney, of course, can't get involved in most of those cases and probably shouldn't. Villafania wrote the indictment and prosecution memo by May 2007. But by early September of that same year, Alex Acosta was actively making decisions on the Epstein case. By the next month, he was meeting in person with Epstein's lawyer, Jay Lefkowitz, the powerful GOP insider Acosta knew back at Kirkland & Ellis. Paul Pelletier said that's just not done. So a U.S. attorney meeting with any defense attorney during an investigation of a sex crimes case is third rail verboten, okay? So now you add to that mix defense attorneys who have previous relationships with the U.S. attorney, and it is a disastrous cocktail. And that's exactly what happened here. On October 12th, 2007, Acosta drove 70 miles for an in-person breakfast with Lefkowitz. It appears that nobody else from his office, including Marie Villafania, was there. To put it mildly, this is nuts. U.S. attorneys don't take private meetings with defense attorneys, especially not alone without any of the prosecutors working on the case. And if, for some reason, they do, those defense attorneys drive to them. This was power theater and Acosta was losing before it even began. This is how Acosta tried to justify that meeting at a press conference he held shortly before he stepped down as labor secretary. Yes, I met with opposing counsel. It was a breakfast meeting because I was staying at the hotel. It was after, after, not before, and not part of the negotiations, but it was after the agreement had been negotiated. And that could be confirmed simply by looking at the date on the agreement and the date on the meeting. Pelletier doesn't buy it. There is absolutely no basis for a U.S. attorney to be meeting in a hotel with a defense attorney during the investigative phase of the case. None, zero, zip, nothing, nothing good could come of that. And the worst thing 
And why, why most U.S. attorneys are smart enough never to do that is because even if there isn't corruption, that's what everybody's going to think. Now, I know this hotel. I've stayed at it many times before in my prior life as a White House correspondent covering Donald Trump. It's not a place where high-powered lawyers show up in their tailored suits to strike a deal. This is an airport hotel, less than a mile from Palm Beach International. Most of the people who stayed there before Trump's presidency were likely spending one night max. It was a layover hotel. And while I enjoyed the omelet bar, it's a hotel on the side of a highway. It's a highly unlikely place to find Acosta and Lefkowitz. And after that meeting, Lefkowitz wrote Acosta. Thank you for the commitment you made to me during our October 12th meeting. You assured me that neither your office or the Federal Bureau of Investigation would intervene regarding the sentence Mr. Epstein receives. As you can probably tell from that assertive thank you note, the Epstein deal, negotiated largely by Villafania that fall, was not normal. We'll get to that after the break. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. After a year of feeling like she was getting the runaround, Courtney decided she needed a lawyer. A lawyer who knew how the system worked and could get answers. So I remember getting the phone book and, like, looking through the phone book and going, you know, for trafficking or sexual abuse. And I I called, like, 10, 12 people. One of those lawyers from the phone book suggested an attorney near her in Fort Lauderdale, Brad Edwards. The next day, she went over to his office and only had a simple request. Her real ask was, look, I'm one of many people who is cooperating with the federal government. There's this major federal investigation into Jeffrey Epstein. I am being told that it's a long process and to be patient, uh, but I just want to know what's going on. I'm calling the U.S. Attorney's Office and nobody's calling me back. Her real ask was, help me make sure that I'm in the loop, that I know what's going on. You've heard from Edwards before. He's appeared earlier in this season talking about the survivors he represents. But when Courtney first called him, he had never heard the name Jeffrey Epstein. He had no idea that this would become a decade-long saga. He just thought, this seems pretty straightforward. Edwards had been a prosecutor. He knew what must be going on. The prosecutors definitely wanted Courtney's help. There was just a mix-up in communication. So Edwards called Villafania expecting her to be overjoyed. But according to Edwards, she wasn't. And she didn't give him any useful information as to the status of the case. Edwards had a theory. The prosecutors didn't need Courtney because they already had too many strong witnesses. I was doing everything possible to make this that easy task, is just talking with the prosecutor and, um, and thought that I was going to report back to Courtney Everything's on track. 
their case is so strong and so big, they can't possibly be telling the victims everything that's going on. We now know a lot about what was happening when Villafania wasn't talking with Courtney. That's because in a subsequent legal case, a judge released the emails between Villafania and Epstein's legal team. These emails show in real time what was going on during the period when the feds were negotiating with Epstein's lawyers. Most notably, they reveal Epstein's defense strong-arming federal prosecutors into keeping the victims in the dark about the deal. In some emails to Epstein's defense, Villafania and her team do express a desire to tell the victims about the non-prosecution deal. But Epstein's team said no. Now, in normal situations, defense lawyers don't get to dictate what prosecutors do. But that didn't seem to apply in this case. Epstein's team had direct access to the big boss, Acosta. He was only an email away. Jay Lefkowitz, one of Epstein's lawyers, wrote to the U.S. attorney and said point blank that no one from the U.S. attorney's office should let any survivors know about the pending agreement. To quote the email directly, Lefkowitz wrote, Not only would that violate the confidentiality of the agreement, Mr. Epstein will have no control over what is communicated to the identified individuals at this most critical stage. Epstein's team clearly felt they could dictate how prosecutors talk to victims. And that argument apparently worked, at least in part. The FBI, at the direction of Villafania, did speak with three victims about the general terms of the non-prosecution agreement after it was signed. But Villafania knew of more than 30 victims, and none of the others knew anything about it. Over the next few months, several victims received a letter from the FBI. It said, This case is currently under investigation. This can be a lengthy process, and we request your continued patience while we conduct a thorough investigation. That letter is incredibly misleading. It came months after a deal had been signed, and the U.S. Attorney's Office had shared a draft letter with Epstein's legal team, saying that all investigations had ceased. Years later, Villafania defended the government's decision not to notify the victims. In Villafania's view, the investigation continued up to the time of Epstein's state plea deal. And so Villafania maintained that these letters were in fact accurate. She also said that it might have been inaccurate to notify the victims because there were signs that Epstein was going to break the terms of the agreement, and therefore a trial remained a possibility. In her eyes, telling the victims about any restitution component might undermine the victim's credibility if this did end up going to trial. In short, she couldn't notify the victims because if she told them the truth, they and their lawyers would act against their own interest. Years later, Judge Kenneth Mara would issue a blistering decision, ripping apart so many of these decisions. His opinion was later overturned, but what he found was that the U.S. Attorney's Office violated the victims' rights in not conferring with them about the agreement. This deception is what angered Judge Mara. Eventually, Mara ruled that the Epstein deal itself was not improper. It fell within prosecutorial discretion. However, there is a law. 
the Crime Victims' Rights Act that requires the government to keep victims informed on the status of cases involving them. And he wrote, when the government gives information to victims, it cannot be misleading. The most agonizing part of all of this is thinking of Courtney and the other victims in that long period when they still believed that prosecutors were fighting for them, that justice was coming. For example, Courtney was invited to a victim services meeting in West Palm Beach in January 2008, a couple of months after the deal was signed. That was when she met Villafania. And Maria sat in front of me, and I'm sat across from her. And so I remember feeling like they were helping me, though. Like I was like, oh, my gosh, these people are so nice. This is so nice. You know, um, they're going to get me this stuff or whatever. Well, like, as I, when it was over with, she, like, came, like, put her hand over my hand and said, you know, I can assure you, you will get justice for this. Courtney says she had no idea that there was any deal at that point. Now, she feels furious when she thinks back on that meeting. At that day and time, the secret plea had already been signed. So on the day she said that, she it was just like a lie in my face. So I've always had a personal, like, why did you do that? You know, you didn't have to do that to me. You didn't have to do that to me. This is Courtney's version of events. The government has their own story, which they made in a subsequent legal case. It's much more confusing and, to be honest, hard to believe. They say they did tell Courtney about the non-prosecution agreement in October 2007. But they also say that they couldn't tell her about the non-prosecution agreement in January, even though the NPA had already been signed. They claim they were worried the case would fall apart. Courtney stated in her own declaration that the agent she met with didn't explain that the MPA had been signed, and she was under the impression that the federal investigation was ongoing. Courtney wasn't the only victim being stonewalled by Villafania. Spencer Coven is another lawyer who continues to represent a number of Epstein's victims. He had been talking to Villafania regularly, and then, sometime in mid-2007, she stopped talking to him or would talk but wouldn't share any information. He found it difficult to explain this to his clients, to the victims, who just wanted to know when Epstein would be arrested and when he would go to jail. What do you mean they won't talk to us? What do you mean that, you know, they're not getting back to you? How's that possible? And I keep kept having to tell them, look, you know, I can only do what I can do, and if they won't talk to us, then there's nothing we can do at this point. In June 2008, Edwards was in Jacksonville, and out of the blue, something strange happened. Marie Villafania called him. And she said that Jeffrey Epstein was pleading guilty in state court to some other charges, some state court charges. And I said, well, you know, that's my client, you know, Courtney, and at the time I was representing two others. They're not involved in the state court case. This is a, this is a federal case. And uh, she said, yeah. And I said, oh, okay, well, just making sure that they don't, have to be there. He said there was tension in Villafania's voice. He thought she was being constrained by some sort of office policy. And I remember going back inside and telling my mom, that was the strangest call. You know, I'm being called by a federal prosecutor telling me something is happening in state court. The state court case, that's the one we dealt with last week. The one where Barry Krischer and Lana Belalovic inexplicably sent Epstein's case to a grand jury who returned one measly count of solicitation of prostitution. That was the outcome that so enraged the local police that they turned to the feds. 
Villafania was now telling Edwards that Epstein was pleading guilty in state court. He didn't care. He was interested in the future, in the feds. So Edwards didn't bother going to the hearing where Epstein formally accepted Krischer's deal. His clients didn't go. Spencer Kubin, the lawyer representing other Epstein victims, did go. Not because he cared about the state case, but because he wanted to serve Epstein with a subpoena, and he knew Epstein would be there. The courtroom was packed. Maria Villafania was there. His lawyers were all there. Mr. Epstein was there. He had to sign some documents, stand up in the court well. What was his demeanor like that day? Still smug. I mean, he just still had that little smile on his face like the cat that ate the bird. Lana Belalovic, the Palm Beach County prosecutor, was there that day too. This is the lawyer who, by both R and Julie K. Brown's count, never reached out to more than three victims to request that they appear at the grand jury. She stood in front of the judge at Epstein's sentencing and said something truly staggering. There's a transcript of the proceedings where the judge asks, are all the victims in both of these cases in agreement with the terms of the plea? And Belalovic says, I have spoken to several myself and I have spoken to counsel, through counsel as to the other victim, and I believe, yes. We don't know who exactly Belalovic spoke to or exactly what she meant, and this statement might have been true for the state case, but from the perspective of the federal victims, this couldn't have been further from the truth. Spencer Coven was watching all of this. He had showed up because he knew Epstein would have to be there, and he wanted to serve him a new civil suit. He was waiting for that opportunity, sitting quietly in the courtroom, when he saw something that surprised him. The court went off the record. There's no transcript of what happened next. But because he was there in person, he was able to watch. The attorneys, both the state attorney and the defense attorneys for Mr. Epstein, asked to approach the bench, and they had some kind of a private conference at the bench. Still don't know what they discussed. Wasn't on the record. It ended with the judge being presented with a sealed envelope that would be attached to the plea agreement. There was no explanation to the room what it was. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Now that the state case was wrapped up, Edwards figured the feds would issue their own charges quite quickly. The feds had dozens of witnesses and a long list of federal crimes to charge Epstein with. And so I called Marie Viafania and said, you know, what's going to go on with the, the federal investigation? And she said, you should just write us a letter. And I said, write you a letter? Edwards was understandably baffled. After trying so diligently to get more information, Villafania was telling him to send her a note by snail mail? It seemed like the complete opposite of urgent. Yeah. I don't really understand what's happening. Why can't you tell me any information? So I wrote a letter over the 4th of July weekend. 
explaining to her just how dangerous Jeffrey Epstein was, and she didn't get back to me. Now, Edwards was stuck. He'd written the letter she had asked for, but he still didn't have any more intel. So I sat over the weekend trying to figure out, well, what do I do with the fact that the government's not, they're not answering me now, you know? Courtney's not a conspiracy theorist. What Courtney's saying is, is right. They are really not paying attention or they're hiding something. So I looked at Courtney's letter that she had received from the government saying that she had rights. The letter mentioned a law called the Crime Victims' Rights Act. So Edwards had to find out what exactly that was. I'm reading this act, and it, it ensures victims' basic rights, you know, the right to be treated with fairness and dignity and be told of court hearings and to be told of any resolution of the case and to be able to confer with the, the prosecutor. I said, well, she's not being offered the opportunity to confer with the prosecutor. I'm asking to do that. The prosecutor won't even confer with me. Uh, so I drafted up a, a motion for enforcement of victims' rights under the Crime Victims' Rights Act, and I um, got up that Monday morning, and I drove it myself to the federal courthouse. It was a bold move. Edwards had never been to the federal courthouse in Palm Beach before, but Edwards was desperate. He thought there was a chance the feds might strike a plea deal with Epstein, just like the Palm Beach prosecutors did, and he wanted to make sure that Courtney and the other victims had a chance to talk to the feds first. So he drove to court. I asked the the bailiff downstairs, like, where's the clerk's office? I have to file this. And I walked in and waited in line. I get to the window and the lady, you know, turns and says, you have your papers? And I, I hand it to her, and I said, hey, look, uh, I really need a hearing. And she said, okay, uh, you're, you're, you'll get a hearing, but in, in due time, you know. And I said, no, I need a hearing, like, today. Like, th- this, is, this is urgent. This is, I need immediate help. And she said, okay, this is not how it works. You don't get a hearing today. You know, and, and so I said, go, go, go talk to your manager or your boss or whoever. And so she goes back, and she comes back and says, look, this isn't even categorized as an emergency. And I said, give it, give it back to me then. And so she, she gave me the paper back, and I walked over to, like, the little table on the side and took the pen that's hanging on the string and wrote, hand-wrote the word emergency in front, in front of the pleading and took it back. I said, here, here it is. Now it's an emergency. And she, she like, laughed out loud and, and, and said, uh, okay, I mean, there's a first time for everything, right? And then she went back and talked to her manager and said, okay, we'll file it right now. And I said, okay, well, I'm here for a hearing. She's like, "Ah, it doesn't happen that fast, but but we got one that Friday. Four days later, Edwards, Courtney, and her best friend, Jane Doe Two, were in court. They sat on one side of the courtroom, and Villafania and the government's appellate lawyer, Dexter Lee, sat on the opposite side. The two primary FBI agents on the case were sitting behind them. Judge Mara took the bench and invited Edwards to approach the podium. Edwards stood up and said that Jeffrey Epstein was one of the most dangerous sexual predators in American history. He reminded the judge that Epstein had sexually abused dozens and dozens of girls between the ages of 13 and 17. He told the judge that he believed that the government was secretly negotiating with Epstein's team, which violates the Crime Victims' Rights Act. And then Lee, the prosecutor on Villafania's team, stood up. He said no. The feds were not going to strike a deal with Epstein. They had already agreed on a deal with him. It was finalized and signed nine months earlier. Edwards and his clients were gobsmacked, utterly taken aback. They couldn't help feeling that every single interaction that Courtney and Edwards had with Villafania for almost a year was a lie. Courtney was stunned. 
I would just like to believe in my heart that like she just knows how corrupt it really was. Like I think she knows firsthand and maybe that's why she's so emotional about it. Because anytime I've ever met the woman, she cries. And it's not a boohoo cry. It seems very deep and sincere. This deal has been widely covered and discussed, but the details are still shocking. Villafania and Acosta didn't force a tougher settlement on Epstein. They gave him a better deal than the ridiculously sweet deal he got from the Palm Beach prosecutors. It was bigger than a plea deal. It was an immunity deal. They gave him immunity from the federal crimes he was investigated for, at least in the Southern District of Florida. And they gave immunity to potential co-conspirators, some of them identified by name. Normally, people who commit crimes only get immunity when they testify against their co-conspirators. Here they are giving immunity to people who they didn't even speak with, like Ghislaine Maxwell, who never provided any information. If the details of this non-prosecution agreement can startle us now, 12 years later, imagine how it felt to Brad Edwards. He had to let that all sink in. And then he had to make decisions. The judge asked him, what does he want to do? Judge Mara says to me, hey, look, you filed this as an emergency motion because you were trying to stop something that you thought was about to happen. You basically had this gut feeling that the government is going to secretly work out a deal without telling your clients. What you just learned is it already happened. So what do you want me to do about it? So the judge sent them into the hallway to work it out. I mean, it really was horrendous. And so we went in the hallway, and I felt like it was a movie because this can't possibly happen. This is the United States of America, right? This doesn't happen where the government stands up and, and says, no, no, you know, we're, we're, we, we have a secret deal with, with Jeffrey Epstein, and uh, we're not going forward with any prosecution. He basically got immunity. Edwards, along with Courtney and Jane Doe, too, Marie Villafania and the other prosecutor, Dexter Lee, and some of the FBI agents on the case walked into a room. Villafania, he says, looked shattered. Marie starts to talk, but can't really. And so... What do you mean she can't really talk? Well, so she says, hey, look, I I feel terrible for Courtney. And I said, okay, but we've been talking. And nobody's told me that somehow there was this secret deal going on. She said I couldn't. And Dexter jumps in and tries to give me some legal uh, mumbo-jumbo as to why there was no explanation. And you see the agents behind, uh, behind them. I look at the agents, and the agents kind of look down like, the sense that anyone would have got is, this was totally wrong, and somebody should do something about it. Like it felt like they all knew it was a dirty deal. Oh, they knew. I mean, the, the agents— They couldn't look you in the eye? The agents, the agents were trying to convey to me that this is a this is a fight you need to take on. Both agents were looking at me when when Marie said, "I feel bad for Courtney." They gave that look like this was a bad deal. When Dexter was talking, they were both kind of rolling their eyes like this is somebody trying to wiggle their way out of this. The feeling I got is, we wish we were on your side of the table. We do not want to be standing behind the government right now. And so I I got the feeling that the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office were not aligned at all. Courtney and the other victim, who Brad calls Lynn, were confused since everyone was using legal jargon. Courtney's listening to this going, I don't understand. What do you mean there was a secret deal? Is she actually saying that out loud? Oh, yeah. And, And, well, Lynn was even more outspoken. 
I mean, really? Oh, yeah. She was like, what the F is this? I mean, this is how the system works? When I get arrested on juvenile charges, there's no secret deal. I get in trouble for it right away. You know, so um, they're behind you, like having a freak out, and these prosecutors out. are just quiet, like stone cold quiet. Yes, stone cold quiet and despondent, like sad. The look on Marie's face was sadness. I I knew right then this is not a decision that she wanted to make either. So I had nobody in the room that was really standing up for the validity of what had happened. But I still have two clients behind me saying, "Well, what does this mean?" and mean not knowing the answer. Edwards wasn't sure what it all meant. He couldn't even figure out how to explain it to his clients. When Marie said to Courtney in the hallway, you know, I'm sorry for what happened, Courtney said, I'm still not sure what happened. Even now, Courtney is still perplexed. But she knew right away that the deal was wrong. It was morally wrong, and it wasn't the justice she deserved. And almost immediately, she wanted to fix it to fight back. And that's what she did. That fight, a fight Courtney and Edwards largely waged alone for a decade, is disturbing and fascinating and dramatic. And we go there next week. I was sexually abused by Jeffrey Epstein, yes, but I was re-victimized by our government. He would say, hey, I just want to let you know, if you keep prosecuting me the way that you are, somebody's going to get hurt. I mean, I had no doubt that if he found that out, he would try to kill me. Everybody's like, why keep fighting? Why? Why? How did you do this? And it was, I don't know if it's my higher power or my gut or what, but it was just like a little voice inside me that is just like, keep on going, just keep on doing this. That's next week on Broken Seeking Justice. The Polaris Project is an organization dedicated to eradicating sex and labor trafficking. They help people who are being exploited through their hotline and also conduct research to help change the understanding of and response to human trafficking. If you're interested in supporting their work, you can find out more at polarisproject.org. That's P-O-L-A-R-I-S project.org. Broken Seeking Justice is produced by 3 Uncanny 4 Productions. Our show is produced by Krista Ripple and Jennifer Siegel with help from Jack Panyard and reporting from Emily Saul. Casey Holford composed our theme, and this episode was mixed by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. Extra big thanks this week to our fact checker, Parker Henry. Our editor is Rachel B. Doyle. Our special correspondent and executive producer is Julie K. Brown. Our other executive producers are Adam Davidson, Laura Mayer, Adam McKay, and Kevin Messick. We'll be back next week.